listening to The Future History of Lakeyard, episode one. Rewind to the beginning. Hey, hey there, my name is Stefan Scott Nelson. Thank you for tuning in to the very first episode. All right, here we, here we go. In this series, our main focus will be musician and futurist, Stuart Argerbright. We will follow his work through many years, several different projects, and talk with some of his collaborators along the way. This will include his work as vocalist percussionist in the New York City-based electronic group Ike Yard. And this band is what this whole podcast revolves around. However, this episode discusses the years before Ike Yard was founded. This is when Stuart lived in and around the beautiful state of Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. We will cover his first group, The Rudiments, and their involvement in the late 70s Washington, D.C. punk-slash-new-wave music scene. In this episode, we're going to bounce around a little bit. Other than my main interview that I did with Stuart, I was able to talk with a couple of key figures of the music scene in D.C. Starting off with Danny Frankel. Danny is a sought-after session drummer and percussionist, He's recorded and performed live with an impressive list of artists that span many different genres. One of his first musical endeavors was playing drums in the band The Urban Verbs from Washington, D.C. I also got the chance to have a conversation with Don Ziantera. Don's the owner and operator of Inner Ear Studios, located right outside of Washington, D.C. Perfect timing put Don right in the middle of an explosion of underground music. He's responsible for recording and producing many influential bands, starting in the late 70s and continuing to the current day. He is a musician recording and performing under his own name, and uh, with several solo records available. First off, we will focus on the early life and creative world of Stuart Argerbright. Born in 1958 in Arlington, Virginia, this is where we will begin. Remember, he who possesses the power of magnetism has absolute power over anything. I trust I have satisfactorily demonstrated my point, but if you should require more than this, there is no limit to the things I can do. First memory is being in my crib and hearing my parents outside in the backyard doing something in the garden, I think it was. My father was at the Pentagon at the end of the 60s. He'd been in the Army, uh, went to the Pentagon. That's Arlington, Virginia. It's right next to Washington, D.C. Nice early life. Dad had a great job. He was one of the heads of communications for Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And then later he worked on a thing called the MoNet, which was the beginning of the mobile internet for the military. Yeah, he used to take me to the Pentagon. We'd be walking hand in hand until a certain door. 
after that door, he could go through and I sit there in, in the kind of generic hallways in Washington, D.C. there and wait for him to come back. Sometimes he would do a night shift, sometimes a day shift. Uh, after my mother passed, and I was probably seven years old, I started taking care of the house myself with my younger brother. I became the man of the house when he wasn't around. We had a pretty great life uh, growing up. My mother was from Ukraine, my father originally German from West Virginia, West Virginia coal mining family, actually. You know, Donald Trump talks about bringing coal mining back. I don't think he's going to bring those guys back. No, I don't think so. He had joined the Army, found his way to D.C., had a pretty great job. They had me, had an older sister. She was into music very early on for me because I was just still growing up, and she was into the 60s music as it was happening. Yeah. You know, Beatles and Stones on TV, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Woodstock, she got invited to go to Woodstock and then asked me to go, but we didn't go. Something happened. We didn't make it. She also, at one point, was going to bring me to see Jimi Hendrix, too, and that would have been great, but I didn't get to see that either. From elementary school on, I was always an artist and really into making art and drawing and uh, cultivated that a lot when I was a kid, would start drawing robots. There was a comic book called Robot Fighter AD. You know, we used to get together with friends and we'd sit and draw things. I was into robots, I would draw robots, robots fighting. Two other friends, we made a kind of a comic book group. We would get together and, and look at comics. And uh, uh, one of them, John Woodward, had an incredible set of comics, especially Marvel comics, and we can remember going through and finding those original split issues of Doctor Strange and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. At some point, uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. was taken over by the fantastic artist Jim Storenko. And uh, kids, if you, if you want to know great comic art, Jim Storenko was one of the best. And you can still find his art and you can find how many people he influenced, including by the time uh, Francis Ford Coppola did his Dracula or influenced the image of the castle in the distance as inevitably the carriage was making its way around that last bend, and then you see the Dracula's castle. He was just a fantastic artist who, recent 10, 20 years, has really gotten his due. It's like Jim Kirby, who did Fantastic Four, Jim Starenko, who did Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and then it went from being a split comic to Nick Fury had his own comic, and the covers, those first 10 covers or so that Storico did, that shit is priceless. It's, it's so crazy pop art that he was putting into comics. The pop art from outside world, including like a Peter Max type of art, he then put that into comics and no one had ever seen that before. It was completely unheard of, but he did it and it really blew things wide open, particularly those first few issues of the Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Incredible uh, series there with crazy very 70s-esque uh, plots where like suddenly some villain they would have a, some superpower and you don't know where he got it but it was overwhelming and you know the military couldn't deal with it but Nick Fury would have like a special kind of power pack on that he would be able to fight the psi power of something like you know the golden dragon Scorpio who is Scorpio was a headline of one of the comics that really blew it through because your backdrop around that time was for example in DC I could buy certain comics. You could buy Fantastic Four and the regular stuff. My mother was Ukrainian descent, and so we would go to see her family and crew in Newark and Elizabeth, New Jersey. You would go to the pizza shop, you'd go to the local magazine store, and you would find, there you'd see Creepy Magazine, Eerie Magazine, Vampirella, 
and these kind of semi-adult, not graphic novels, graphic magazines, basically. Yeah. They'd have five or six episodes, 10-page stories each of horror stories, but drawn by these great artists. You had Bernie Wrightson, you had different people who didn't do comics. So that was another rich world that I got into, and I think those fantastic worlds of eerie and creepy led the way for me to then find uh, people like uh, Beardsley and artists from the old days. Historical figures, you know, in our past, in, in what we learn in art school and so forth, one door led to another, and uh, I was into those things. And by the time I got into those books and those, those different kinds of art and art books, it, I was already in high school, and then, you know, within a little while of, like, going to finding, like, David Bowie in the frozen food section, there was a, there was a row of records uh, uh, down the long line in the supermarket of the frozen foods and stuff, and then suddenly David Bowie, I saw David Bowie's Aladdin Sane there one day, and I was just like, well, what the fuck is this, you know? And it was like, this, is, this has got to be something. Wow. And then jumping right into glam, like with that kind of moment, and then finding out about New York Dolls and different groups that came later. Bowie was a big one and has remained a huge, huge icon and idol, you know, in my life uh, and in my work. The first show I saw was uh, probably in the middle of high school, and it was Humble Pie, the Alexis Corner Blues Band opening and King Crimson with Greg Lake. And uh, Greg Lake was still singing. They still had Boz Burrell on bass and Robert Fripp. I mean, that was maybe one of the highlights of the show was them doing a 21st Century Schizoid Man. That was your first concert? Yeah. I'd never yeah. been to a show before. I'd seen many on TV. Yeah. And maybe already by then I was starting to see like, you know, Midsummer's Rock with Iggy Pop. Iggy and the Stooges, and then Iggy walks out onto the audience and has the jar of peanut butter, and it's a whole famous show that Americans saw. Uh, we'll leave Bob Warner for the moment and go to the stage and listen to Iggy and the Stooges. I did attend uh, Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. We won oh, tickets for that, wow. for that tour, and that was outrageous. And wow. actually, by winning those tickets, we had to go down and pick them up. I mean, my friend Kerry, and we had to go down and pick them up, so we had to hitchhike to D.C. And on the way back, I stuck out our, we stuck out our thumbs on the, on the uh, other side of the, of the bridge, Northern Virginia side. Red Corvette picked us up, and that became uh, the lady uh, in the song, The Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight. Many, oh, many years later. Oh, it was written about that. Oh, interesting. Uh, about this woman who was, a, <clears throat> she was a dominatrix who got involved with the Soviet defector at the end of the Carter administration. And uh, there was a whole thing that got involved with her and the CIA, and they were trying to get him to come over and defect. And uh, oh she gosh. was kind of in the middle. And uh, yeah, she did a whole book about it. She did the she did the talk shows. She did oh. she had a whole run of it, and I said, turned them around. Okay. okay. <laughs> Do you need a ride? Okay. Early on, I, you know, I was into the '60s music that my sister would play. I knew I knew those songs from hearing them on the radio, and so I also grew up on you know soul music and all that stuff too. You know, Motown, yeah. etc. 
got into rock, was then got more into hard rock myself. Groups like UFO, Doctor's Doctor, doing a great track, uh, Mike Schenker on guitar, and Montrose, uh, groups like that. I mean, that's what there was to listen to. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. wasn't, I mean, you, of course you had Led Zeppelin and Alice Cooper, all that too. That was all just great stuff. Yeah. There was no cynicism or, uh, or like, you know, camp reasons why you're into those groups. You're into those groups because you're young and you want to rock. It wasn't rock and roll, it was rock. And the hard rock thing really, I thought, took things to a nice place because it's getting more extreme. And I would gather my uh, my friends in the neighborhood around and we would man like three different brooms and we would rock out in front of the stereo, uh, being able to, because you know, every family had a big stereo in the living room when you had some maybe some furniture in the living room that had uh, covers on it so you couldn't sit in it. My parents were often not home. When my father remarried, those parents were not home very often and so I often had to run of the house really. And I could see them coming from a long ways. I could see the car coming into the subdivision and by then be able to uh, shoot my friends out and uh, clean up the place before they got there or whatever. You know? might have got you first a cassette deck yeah. or whatever it was, a little player or something. And you'd listen to college radio and you'd catch part of one, like say like a, the new Roxy music track. And you run and you record it, like half of it that you happen to catch. And then on the same cassette, you then are going for days afterwards trying to catch the beginning of the yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then, you know, then they'll, be, they'll say, okay, here's the new David Bowie track. You know? Spiders from Mars, or whatever it might be. And, but it, then you had these patchwork cassettes of just like, you know, you already, sometimes you try to write down your notes, like, what song, you got half of a song, yeah, you got a third yeah, of a song. Yeah, yeah. After a while, you're just copying over parts. You take a chance to try to catch, you catch the beginning of a song, you try to catch the end too. And even, even if it means rolling over, you know, Brian Eno track that you got yeah, a third yeah, yeah. of or something. Yeah. At least you got a piece of that. At least you got a piece of it and you can listen to it again. Yeah. You know, because that, those stations would only have those shows one time a week or so with a certain DJ, certain voice, you'd listen to it and try to catch the new stuff. You start tuning on and listen to the shows expressly to hear first glam stuff, but then later as it turned into punk. I say it that way, glam turned into punk, because I feel to some extent that that was the move. That's how it went. Of course, there was garage rock, garage punk, Flamin' Groovies and those groups that were not necessarily the later punk that we knew. It was pretty much stripped down, you know, Wilco too from London, you know, stripped down rock, R&B approach. Maybe they didn't have a lot of solos because they were trying to cut it to a certain bone. Yeah. And I think punk came from a lot of that same thing and it depends on which British punks you talk to, that certainly those groups were an influence on them too. Certainly Wilco in, in the UK, Flamin' Groovies in the US. I don't know Wilco. I mean, uh, yeah, a newer have, band, Wilco. Do you, have, do you have Wilco Johnson on guitar? A really crazy look, crazy look on his face, very possessed, and yeah. then uh, later with a similar crazy look on his face when he became a, uh, a guest, guest appearance on Game of Thrones. Why won't he speak to me? He hasn't been very talkative these last 20 years, since the Mad King had his tongue ripped out with hot pencils. 
my father got remarried and that led us to joining together didn't really join together let's say smashed together two families so I went from sharing a room with one of those kids, Ricky, Ricky Brown, uh, to then uh, getting, I said, oh, you know, after a while, I said, I just can't do this anymore. I got to break out. I, I, I got to get my room downstairs. <laughs> went downstairs, the, the basement, a little more unstructured, unofficial space, and uh, set up like ping pong tables as my wall partitions, covered them with all the photos of Patti Smith, television, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, McRonson, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. You know, was listening to a lot of the music and following pretty closely and got more and more into it. And then uh, by the time we were going to the keg, it was like, for one thing, there wasn't any clubs in Northern Virginia uh, where I lived. So you had to go to D.C. You had to go to D.C. But uh, there you could get in if you were 18. So sometimes you'd slide in even a little early, a little early before 18. But I guess I was probably... 17, 18, we started going, going there and catching uh, particularly a group called The Raz. Good, I got this on tape to take advantage of this. <laughs> Easy and Abad Barum on guitar and Mike Reedy on uh, vocals and uh, a whole crew of uh, other good musicians doing like Flame and Groovies, uh, Teenage Head, and a couple other cover versions, but uh, also doing their own great tracks. And uh, uh, they had a couple singles and stuff, but they rocked really hard. And Abad was very charismatic. He was kind of like a punk rock Keith Richards in a way. He had a special haircut like yeah. Keith Richards had at the time. We would go see them again and again, and then the other 10 people who would go see those groups became the core of the DC punk rock scene, which was really pretty small, really. Still in high school, I wanted to make a group. I got together with one group of friends uh, before that, and we just kind of banged around a little bit. I think we were able to cobble together like a snare drum. I think I had one snare drum and a cymbal. Mm -hmm. One friend was on harmonica, one friend was on guitar. And like we just would get together and just like make music, the three of us, just like for a couple afternoons, you know. And then, and then that was it. And then after that, I was like, well, maybe we should, you know, maybe I gotta think about, you know, getting you know, some musicians. Um, <laughs> I was just kind of recording some of everything. Even by the last year of high school, '76, uh, I decided to make a group with my friends in high school, and. Uh, there was uh, particularly two musicians in school, two guitar players, uh, Tim Cornish and Mark Dagley, and they would play in the courtyards between the two different hallways of the school. And then everybody knew that these were the two guitar players. So uh, Tim, I managed to draft it into my group, the Rudiments, or the group that I wanted to form, the Rudiments. And the other guitar player was uh, Mark Dagley. Uh, Bruce Blumberg became bass player of the Rudiments. Tim Cornish was, uh, was like one of the best guitar players in school. He would often be found uh, in the passageway between two, two hallways of the school. Our group, The Rudiments, we were kind of grew up on, uh, grew up on rehearsing in our, in our bass player Bruce's basement. We put up foam, I spray painted it. We had our, fr our friends would come by, they'd be taking bong hits in another room. We'd be like, well, sorry guys, this is our rehearsal time. We've got to play music. 
And we weren't that awful, even from the get-go, but our friends, <laughs> our friends were subjected to having to hear us go through, you know, like at some points we might have known three songs and it's like, you know, you, you hear the door close, you know, like, you know. At first they're kind of like, hey, you guys, that's great, you guys are making music. And then after, after a while, you know, it would be like, okay, your door closed, you know. Mark Dagley later be formed a group called The Girls and High Sheriffs of Blue. And they got a reissue a couple of years ago too. And uh, they, were, they were living in Boston by then, so they were the High Sheriffs of Blue from Boston. The High and Sheriffs of Blue. High Sheriffs of Blue, and that's Mark Dagley was playing guitar. And uh, so we kind of hung out together, we started making music together, and we made that group. Um, that group got, we, we got a couple offers for shows, um, but we were from Northern Virginia, which we were the only group, I think, from there. No, definitely the only group our, in our age group. Uh, at, at the time, it was uh, like the Slicky Boys was the group in, in D.C., and they invited us to, to play with them. And so we played with the Slicky Boys. I was asked to join another group called the Urban Verbs. That was a, one of the bigger groups in D.C. That uh, sounds familiar. I tried. You know, they wanted me to do vocals. I, I did some vocals with them, and then I kind of went off back into the night. I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought my own group was fine. Okay, yeah, And yeah. I was happy to be with that group, and... Uh, the, the Urban Verbs. The urban Verbs, yeah, produced by Mike Thorne and Brian Eno, because the drummer, because okay. the vocalist is uh, Chris Franz, uh, yes. Ru Ruddy Franz, the yes. brother of okay. uh, Chris. Stayed friends with their, their drummer, Danny, and Danny played with the Rudiments, too. Uh, the Rudiments would do a regular set. Sometimes we would do some songs by Mark Dagley, our friend uh, from High Sharps of Blue, and the girls, and sometimes he would join us on stage, and sometimes I would just sing, and then uh, Danny Frankel would play drums. What we're listening to here is Acceleration by The Urban Verbs. Danny Frankel, my next guest, is the drummer of the Washington, D.C. group. And after his time in the Urban Verbs, he makes his way into a long career of recording and playing live with an incredible list of artists. Danny has collaborated with Victoria Williams, Lou Reed, the Flying Karmazov brothers, Lori Anderson, and Katie Lang, just to name a few of them. In our conversation here, we will focus on his time in D.C. and his work with the Washington, D.C.-based Urban Verbs. What is your favorite fruit beverage? <laughs> you know what? I'm a pineapple. What? Pineapple. Yeah, I like pineapple. What about yourself? Fantastic. I know you, you grew up in... Uh, Cleveland. So I was like 10. At okay. The, then. And then you moved to D.C.? Yeah. Okay. And what was the reason of the moves? Oh, the move? Oh, yeah. my dad. He had, he had a, <laughs> uh, a job opportunity okay. in, uh, 
in D.C. That was great. To, you know, I like Cleveland a lot, too. It, it, we call it the mistake on the lake. Right, right. <laughs> but I've gone there a few times since then. Yeah, it was great to be in D.C. There's so much culture, you know, and people from all different countries. It's really beautiful. And in fact, yeah, I, I still love going back there. And when you moved there, were you already really into music by that time? It wasn't until I was there, moved, that I started liking uh, the Beatles and like different okay. uh, jazz guys that okay. came out. I remember liking when jazz drummers would play like quote-unquote rock and roll and the backbeat, you know, instead of on two and four, it would be like uh, displaced a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I was like totally into that. I related to that a lot. that I liked a lot. One was like a, the Motown beat. <laughs> Another was uh, like a New orleans kind of thing. And one day my father came back from work and he said he told his um, friends at work that uh, I was interested in playing drums and someone said, um, well, if he wants to play drums, he, he should learn how to play bongos first. <laughs> I thought that was super cool. It was like beatnikism, you know. But since then, I, I did get into percussion a, a lot. You yeah. know, that's one of the things I like to do. I like to make a hybrid of the two, drums and percussion. Let's get into the urban verbs. Mm -hmm. Getting into making music. How does young Danny get to be the drummer for the urban verbs? Did you do a lot of other stuff before that? Were you playing around with Oh, around town. What? I was playing with this character named Root Boy Slim. <laughs> it's kind of bluesy and kind of psycho. Root Boy Slim. Yeah, he put out a few records oh, wow. in D.C. A little bit like Beefheart. I mean, more like a bar band kind of guy. But fun and, and wacky. But also I was accompanying dance classes on percussion, playing with uh, some original music kind of people around D.C. area. And it was this friend of mine who, he'd, he'd met the Urban Verb. So he met the two guys, uh, Roddy France, his brother's Chris France yeah. from the Talking Heads, yeah. and Robert, the, the other songwriter. And I went down to their uh, rehearsal studio. It was in D.C., it was a lot like uh, Times Square in the 70s, like just like a crazy... Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was really wild. Rough, rough around the edges. Like the Roman Empire. <laughs> and they were able to get this uh, space there for pretty cheap. And we rehearsed there a bunch. And then it felt, felt like art rock. It was really exciting back then. It was like something in the air. You can really feel it. That was like late 77. That's right around when you joined them, right? Yeah. And did they have a different drummer before you? No, it was you just... You were the first? Yeah, it was just okay. starting out like that. And you kind of learned together. Okay. Yeah, we definitely did. Yeah, we learned like yeah, like a vocabulary. Yeah. And uh, things were pretty set, but it, it was interesting that way. It was like a... There was an avant-garde type of feeling. It's uh, interesting to think of what was around it to influence... That, like, oh, I think what? about that a lot too. Like, yeah. I'll hear like an old, old record, old music, and I'll think of like what was happening in the world like during that time. Yeah. It was like a, a war going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the political climate was like, or how, how what the clothing people wore. Did you feel 
there were other people around you in that scene that were doing something similar or was it kind of singular there were singular in dc most of the people in the band were from the art scene in, in dc okay. and i think that is something to do with it i yeah. really think so we would play like in someone's gallery now a lot of people thought we were uh, like really elitist you know and shitheads <laughs> because we were kind of separate yeah and maybe a little older than the, the other scene but i i didn't have any problem with that that was all great yeah yeah you know, I, I like to be friends with those people and and hear them um and i think also when we got this deal with warner brothers people like uh, were bummed out about that we reflected uh like big business but i really think a lot of those people did also i mean they, they would wish they were had that i imagine it's tough in a scene when somebody takes off have to feel like they're competing and, yeah you know no, we, we had our like down periods too. Wow, I mean, like in the middle of a tour, we found out that we, we weren't going to be uh, supported by the record company anymore. Oh gosh! <laughs> so we weren't getting any, any money in the middle of a tour. Yeah. Wow. It was in uh, Boulder. Wow. Boulder. <laughs> yeah, for the most part, it was really great. Oh yeah, a lot of people thought that we got this deal and this great hookup because of uh, Roddy's brother, Chris France. Yep. You yep. know, Chris France did invite. Eno to a, a gig we did at um, CBGB's. Yeah. I don't know, maybe Eno wouldn't have showed up if it wasn't Chris asking him, saying like, hey, you should check out my brother's band. Yeah. But I don't know, what can you do? We, we, um, <laughs> he, he liked us and then he, oh, he recorded us at CBGB's and kept the rhythm section. Then he we went in the studio and he had uh, Roddy uh, talk, like recite spoken word, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. lyrics, you know, instead of sing. Yeah, yeah. I, thought, I love that concept, I thought it was great. Yeah. in the Urban Verbs, we were recording at Media Sound, it was by Columbus Circle, and Mike Thorne was the producer, yeah. like, he was cool, he did the first three uh, Wire records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was on, yeah, it must have been on an off day, the whole entire day, we just walked all around New York, we went to CBGB's like during the day, we were just like sitting there for a while, nice, nice. it was like really silly, and then, then uh, went to his apartment two nights in a row, and we jammed with um two of us and a neighbor, a guy from Germany upstairs. It was really fun. One of the days, um, he said he had to go early because he was going to DJ a party, and he said he was going to uh, play a lot of James Brown records. Nice. And at that time, I just thought, wow, that's really cool. You know, <laughs> James Brown, like the whole super groove thing that they get into. I think he's really creative. I remember the first times I would see him in D.C. He was in a band called The Rudiments. Yeah, yeah. And he played... Actually, kind of like a no-wave kind of thing. He played um, a really minimal drum kit. And it looked like he was left-handed. Like, he'd play, like, a, a, the Hyatt ride, you know, with his left hand. And he he seemed like a multi-instrumentalist kind of yeah, guy. Like yeah, things yeah. Would say. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. 
and uh, he, he seemed like someone who had different, a different approach to drumming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's always been really fresh yeah, like, yeah. in my mind. And talking to you for this one, and also I got to, to talk to Don Zientera. Oh, definitely. Okay, yeah, I yeah. did an interview with him. Oh, so wow. those, your interview and his his interview and the stuff with Stuart will all be together mm -hmm. in one episode. He yeah. was the producer of a lot of these like uh, garagey punk things yeah. that came out of DC. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. it was an exciting time. Yeah. yeah. Did you work with Don? Did you the, end up? There's some like uh, 45, some singles. Like one was a like a song about. Christmas and we punked it out. <laughs> uh, different people from uh, that band, the Slicky Boys, yeah, yeah. and the Nurses yeah. with Howard Wolfing. Yeah. I think it was a band made up of some of these people, you know, from from those bands. But it's it's cool. Like I listened to uh, Urban Verbs reunion show. I mean, like the last. Oh yeah, there's one at a gallery in uh, American University like two years ago. Okay, yeah. Was but, that the last time you played? Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely was. That was great. Um, yeah, Robert was like overjoyed that that happened, and then man, and then he, he died like a few months yeah. after that. Yeah. It was like that ever-ready battery. <laughs> you just kept on going. Really? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Even back then in the day, we'd have um, a list of the itinerary for the different clubs, but he'd also have this itinerary with different medical centers. God, he was really a trooper. He was the one that got us signed. It really helped okay. with that. But yeah, he, he was joyed how it worked out yeah, to play. To play. I'm play really again. happy about that. Yeah, yeah. Will you play again, you think, or is that um, because he's... Well, actually, the singer, Roddy, he wants to um, record some songs with uh, Marshall Keith from the Slicky Boys oh. and myself. And uh, there's a guy named Abad who is in a band called Raz in New York. Yeah, oh, yeah. Stuart mentioned Yeah, Raz, they're like yeah. very... Uh, Nice. Um, yeah, that would so be great that, to work that out. Will that be in Urban Verbs? Uh, I don't know. If, or just something uh, new, maybe? Yeah, I think maybe it might be under Roddy's name. Okay, okay, okay. Cool. The, the party continues. <laughs> Danny Franco used to join the Rudiments on stage because at some point I would get up from the drums and do vocals, and he would play drums. And first show, I stepped out from the stage onto one of the tables where people are having drinks, kind of stood on a table, and the people at the club didn't like that, and that's why we got banned. And they also oh. said, they also said, you know, these guys didn't attract any people who drink. And well, fact was, we were barely drinking age at the time. I have to say, it made a, a schism in the early punk rock scene in D.C. because basically we got banned. Uh, us and a group called White Boy. Some people said, well. We don't want to play there if those groups can't play there. That was more like the Slicky Boys who liked us and were our friends. Yeah. But other groups said, well, we don't mind. It's the only club in town that's playing this music. We're going to go and play at the Atlantis. And what was really cool was, uh, historically, was the rudiments. Even though we got banned after our first show at the Atlantis Club, that later became a 930 club that everybody knows as Washington, yeah. D.C.'s yeah. club. We were invited to record after even one show. Uh, Don Ziantira had a new studio called Inner Ear Studios that he just was opening up, and I think we were the first group in there. 
to record in her ear and then later Fugazi and all the hardcore. You were one of the first bands. You maybe think, the first. Maybe the first. Maybe the first. Inner ear. Inner ear studios. Wow. And, and we did a song called Imagination. That was the first song I wrote. That became a song on a, a 30 Seconds Over DC compilation. That on, became that song. Yeah. The first it, song yeah, you ever wrote. It was. Okay, um, interesting. Imagination. It was on 30 Seconds Over DC on Limp Records. Later reissued by uh, Henry Rollins and uh, Ian McKay from Fugazi on Henry Rollins' side label. And that that was reissued not so long ago. That was reissued probably early 2000s or so, as I can remember. What we are listening to now is Imagination by The Rudiments, recorded and produced by Don Zientera at Inner Ear Studios in its first location, the home of my next guest. Don's list of records he has produced and engineered is impressive. He is one of the most important figures of the Washington DC music scene, and he is currently very active, running his studio, recording and producing artists, as well as writing and creating his own music. In our conversation, we talk about how he got involved in creating music and his time in the late 70s music underground. Just a night in the city, in E-Town, USA, I walk where it's lonely, you know I do this all the time. Hello, Don. Hi, Stefan. Hey, how you doing? Good. Just very fine. Oh, Absolutely good. fine. Good. You know, you're calling two minutes early. Oh, gosh. <laughs> According to my phone. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> None of us has a good watch anymore. So, okay, let's get down to business. What's interesting to me, and I'm a fan of a lot of the bands that you worked with, this was before a lot of that stuff really got going, right? I mean, this is kind of... Oh, absolutely. This is the... What we're talking about is the very beginning of the punk aesthetic coming to to DC. And and you provided a, a space for all these artists to work in that have never been in, in studios. And, you know, you were such a big part of that shaping that whole what happened in that that area and that that sound and that's why you know i really wanted to get a chance to to talk to you well thank you my hats won't fit anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, you know it was really the timing of everything that was a lot of it the outlook i take or i took at the time of not not being a documentarian of it um, but at the same time, seeming to be a documentarian, but really almost providing a, a you know, from the Beat Generation had a coffee house type atmosphere mm-hmm. to a lot of their music. And this was kind of the same way where, you know, you can come in, people would play on different people's records. There was, you know, some uh, cross pollination of talent all over the place. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And there was, you know, there, I, I would 
you know, sort of guide them into different areas and, and, you know, some of it worked and some of it didn't work. And, um, there was, it was a very, very comfortable thing. Yeah. And I think that the bands, any musician, even today, uh, one of the biggest things is, is being comfortable while you're recording. If you aren't comfortable, then it doesn't make any difference. Uh, you know, you aren't going to do right. Yeah. To start with, I just was curious to the development of your studio and, and becoming an audio engineer. How did that start for you? How did it start? Yeah. Boy, that's a, it's a, it's kind of a long, convoluted <laughs> journey, very twisted. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was about um, 10 years old, uh-huh. my parents thought that I probably benefit from having some music lessons. And I, I grew up in a Polish community, and music lessons there basically were for accordion. I uh, we went down to the music store where they gave lessons and things like that. And uh, you know, I was asked, "Do you want to study accordion or guitar?" It was a pretty easy pick for me. I mean, you'd see the accordion player there, you know, and yeah, I want to be like Elvis, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I studied uh, guitar. Uh, along with a buddy of mine. And then ev- eventually I just sort of put the guitar down and, and we, you know, put it in the closet and there it sat uh, for a couple years. Then that friend of mine, he'd continued guitar lessons and uh, he came over and uh, said, I could teach you some uh, Beatles songs were just coming into favor at the time. Yeah. And so I, I started playing again and started playing and writing and doing all sorts of things like that. That kind of led to just my um, intrigue with tape recorders because I could had got together with groups of guys in the neighborhood and we have a little band together and we tape record ourselves mm-hmm. and tape record ourselves at parties. Kept on and I kept playing through high school and in uh, bands, rock and roll and things like that, and, and through college too, and gathered a little more equipment, not a whole lot, but a little more, mostly stuff I made myself because. Um, I really couldn't afford too much, so I would make my my own little mixers and things like that and put it together and uh, use those things. Then um, at the end of my uh, undergraduate career, um, there was the draft lottery started. Mm -hmm. I was slated to go to school in West Virginia University to study, uh, continue my studies in art, painting and printmaking. And so I kind of kept out of their reach for about a year. So I decided that they had a uh, program called uh, Guaranteed Training. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've always been intrigued by, but never had a formal education in, was electronics. Mm. And after basic training, they finally called me into the head office there and uh, said, look, um, there's a lot of people who want training in electronics at this particular time. Um and we've noticed that you have degrees in art. They needed someone who uh, knew how to draw and paint uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. And they said, would I want to do that instead of this training? And so I said, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so I ended up in Alexandria, Virginia uh, for a couple years, um, just basically drawing, painting, retouching photographs, framing things, oh, all God. kinds of stuff uh, related uh, to that. Huh. 
And when I got out, I um, I worked at the National Gallery of Art for about uh, uh, for about ten years. Oh. The first five was spent in the prints and drawings department. But all this while, I had been fooling around with electronics and tape recorders and all kinds of that stuff like that. So one day, they uh, I was getting a tour of the gallery, and they took us into one spot where they were setting up uh, their first recording studio, and they were having trouble with uh, connecting up a mixing board, I believe. And I said, well, it's pretty simple. Here's what you do. And they're kind of astounded. <laughs> and they said, well, how would you like to be the recording engineer? So I sort of just uh, flipped from the prints and drawings to uh, the recording engineer. And I started recording for them. Wow. And, um, yeah, and along all through this time, about that time, some friends of mine had uh, wanted me to record them uh, in some live concerts. And I had a stereo tape recorder, so I record them live at a concert. Like on one channel would be music, and the other channel would be the vocals. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very, very crude. Sure. And, um, but I did a number of these recordings, and eventually got a little bit into four tracks. I, I got a four, four track and um, started getting more equipment and yeah. built a mixer of my own and started setting things up in my basement. And that's sort of, uh, that's where the rudiments were uh, uh, recorded in the basement along yeah. with a lot of our uh, groups. And uh, from there, just uh, went into the, the, the inner air studios where we are now in uh, Shirlington, which is about two miles away. And, and, you know, one of the important things about uh, when I did get into recording, I think a lot of it's situational. And the timing was just perfect because as I was sort of growing into four-track recording from stereo recording at the time, even in stereo recording, uh, the punk or new wave music was just starting. Yeah. And I would consider the rudiments kind of more new wave than punk, but then again... You know, it's hard to draw distinction lines uh, at times. Sure, sure, yeah. But their whole aesthetic was totally turning what established studios did on their head. So they didn't care too much about having the fanciest equipment mm -hmm. or the best rooms. They want just to get the things live and to be recorded as they were with all the energy and the thrash and the, and the volume that they had. So, um, which... I could provide because I, you know, I had, I had, did not have the best equipment. I did not have the best rooms, right, but right. I was, you know, I enjoyed their energy and I liked to record their energy. So it was a perfect matchup, but it was timing. It was really timing. If, um, you know, if it was, if it was five years earlier, um, this probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you created this, area in your basement to be able to record mm -hmm. everything was the idea to start a functional business it was more of a hobby it, it was, was really yeah more of, yeah i started out having all this equipment on the porch we had a, a glassed-in porch okay and and of course running snakes down to the basement to to get the microphones coming up uh, we did that, but, you know, of course, that was not the ideal situation. You needed to be closer. So eventually, it moved from the porch down to the furnace room in the basement, which I'm 
I am about 10 feet from right now. I'm looking right into the furnace room. Um, and it was a, it was basically a small room about the size of a prison cell um, that had a furnace, a big old furnace that was original from the house. We're talking a furnace that is larger than a, a washing machine yeah. um, and a, a water heater in the thing and one door, no windows whatsoever. Um, so in the summertime, it would get quite warm in there, very warm, um, especially with all the equipment heating up and everything. And, yeah. and of course, the water heater was a, it's a gas water heater, so it was a flame from that running all the time. Um, so it was, it was really, really something else. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of the times, the, the mixes, we would mix until we were just so dizzy that we you know, couldn't uh, take it anymore, and we consider the mix finished for a lot of things. Um, yeah, so that was basically it. And the room next door was where the bands recorded it. It was a, um, just a, the size of a bedroom, basically, with a, about seven-foot ceiling, uh, not terribly acoustically correct in any way, shape, or form, right. but it worked. Yeah, yeah. It worked. In the first interview with Stuart, when he was started to talk about the rudiments, he mentioned recording with you, and he thought that he might have been the, one of the first bands that you recorded in that studio. He was. He was. Uh, if I remember, he was one of the first bands. This is a little bit on the hazy side, but I'm going to go through it anyway. Yeah, and yeah. one of the first recordings I did was for a band called the Slicky Boys um, okay. at an American university. They were playing at one of the taverns there. And I did that, and we recorded. They came down and, and mixed it along with their uh, uh, producer, Skip Groff, who was uh, on the record store at the time. I'm sure you remember his name. And also, there was a connection with uh, the Urban Verbs. Okay. Um, Robert, do uh, you know the Urban Verbs? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, Robert Goldstein, uh, who was their guitarist, who's now deceased, and I were in a band before that. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, he played guitar and I played guitar. Okay. He actually, he went to another band after the Urban Verbs and I kind of recorded them. I went to their place, their basement and recorded them on a stereo recorder. And, and so we had a connection at that point. Robert, he was the one who was instrumental in getting the 930 Club started, oh. which was at the Atlantis at the time. Yeah, yeah. He went down with me at noontime one, one day. And he, well, he showed up at the National Gallery where I was working. He said, come on, let's go down to his... This was at the time when um, any kind of new wave or new age bands, and I'm not going to say new age, new wave right. bands, <laughs> new age is a bad word, um, <clears throat> uh, did not, they didn't have a place to play, really. And certainly anything that was punkish in nature didn't have a place to play. And, or any kind, of, any kind of weird bands. The Slicky Boys are kind of weird because they're kind of psychedelic uh, surf rock um, bands. Uh, you could say they were new wave. You could say they were kind of punkish. We went, we went down to the place, this place called Atlantis, the Atlantis building, in the Atlantis building, um, to see if they would want to open up their building um, at nights to uh, bands. And because they were basically a lunchtime buffet bar of sorts. We went there at lunchtime and no one was there. It was very, very sad looking. Uh, we're talking about uh, card tables with paper t 
tablecloths on them oh, and plastic silverware. <laughs> and there was a buffet with very few things on. Everything was just steamed to death. <laughs> uh, you know, vegetables that were turning into molten uh, mounds of, of who knows what. Right. So they were kind of receptive to the idea. And um, so it opened at the Atlantis there. And one of the first bands to play was the Slicky Boys. And one of the first bands a few weeks after that was the, the Urban Verbs. And mm -hmm. I was doing sound for them at the time. And we're talking about a very, very um, primitive sound setup. Yeah. I think it was the Slicky Boys PA. Uh, we're, everything was just sort of what we can gather together from various sources. And the rudiments uh, were in that. I believe uh, I believe one of the, I don't know, it may have been Stuart who was friends with the, the Urban Verbs or someone in the Urban Verbs, but uh, I know Robert spoke very highly of the rudiments. And um, so basically they played there, and I was impressed by him too. So, you know, uh, I invited him to come down to the studio to record. Hmm. Interesting. And um, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a musician and audio engineer, producer, at that time, you were into this other music that was happening on the outskirts of what was popular. Did it seem like it was a movement beginning to happen? Exactly. I knew something was changing, and I didn't know what. I didn't know what would really emerge. It was very interesting to be part of it. Uh, and once again, uh, you know, I go back to the situational thing. I had what these bands wanted. I had a very uh, crude setup. I had a very um, uh, unstructured type of way of, uh, of recording them. And remember the, the, the whole um, produced records from Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. Um, the, the whole word production was sort of like a bad word at the time. Right. We wanted not produce. We wanted, right. we wanted it to be raw, you know. Right. Right. And so, and that's what I did. I, you know, I recorded them. I put them on tape. Um, and there was very little production in the sense of, uh, you know, the the traditional term of really guidance, where a producer goes in and. Oh, perhaps we should put a chorus in here and let's see, you know, put an A minor instead of an A in and things like that. There, there was none of that. Right. None of it. But, at, you know, at the same time, there is a production factor in there. But, of course, nobody talks about it because we didn't want to talk about it because it would be verboten to do that. But <laughs> right, there was, right. you know, to get this energy, they had to be comfortable and they had to, to be able to release this energy without any kind of uh, looking over their shoulders on anything, so it was a, it was a very freeing space that I provided, and the the kind of guidance I provided was more like, well, don't you want to do this? And it was, it came, the direction came from them with a little suggestion from me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the place had to set the character, and 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 the and and people. Um, you know, the, the ones who are producing, engineering, uh, everyone around, uh, they have to be part of that magic. I mean, they provide the magic yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to, you just have to make sure that it's everyone's welcome and, and it all is, is a good time for everyone. The Rudiments did a song, French Marchette, um, oh, which has, 
it, it's uh, it's kind of like four on the floor music, and it is. It kind of probably has foreshadowings of it in sound. Yeah, it's easier to be creative when you have absolutely nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you know you aren't going to go anywhere, and these a lot of the the music at the time, the bands, you know, pretty it was pretty well known. I mean, they weren't going to go anywhere. No one was going to hire them to play anywhere. <laughs> right. um, so let's you know let's you know that frees them up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's very true. He did say one thing that I wanted to mention that he definitely cites you as a hero for them and very important because as he remembered it the rudiments were banned from playing in in dc they kind of felt like they had not much of a chance to really do anything but you recording them breathed life back into what they were doing because i think they kind of felt a little uh, discouraged at the time well that's very kind of them it's I mean, it, I, I guess it just reflects a, a lot of what the bands were feeling with its time. I mean, they were, um, they were, yeah. they were young kids who had a lot of energy, yeah. and uh, you know, a lot of clubs and music halls just did not want them. Right. A lot, As a matter of fact, most all right at, but, at one point. Yeah, well, like, like you said, there was the Atlantis, which became the super famous club that it is now and back then that might have been one of the only places for yeah. for bands to to go into that that realm luckily there are the you know those spots you are a huge part of making all of that happen because of of your presence there you know and being involved with all those people so it's, well, I, I was glad to be and and it was fun yeah, uh, yeah. it was a whole lot of fun and it, it you know i I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from the bands. I learned, uh, you know, I learned, I learned musicianship in a lot of ways from a lot of them. I learned, you know, how bands operate, how they, you know, get together and break up and all that stuff. Uh, more how they break up, but. <laughs>
the trip to New York was with uh, a DC fanzine, the writer said, well, you know, I need to go to New York to, to interview this musician, you know, and I can't go, so do, so do you want to go? I was like, well, who is it? And he goes, oh, well, it's Generation X, Billy Idol. And I was like, oh, cool, I love their music, let me go. And so I took an Amtrak to New York and uh, went to Christmas Records, made my, made my way across town to Christmas Records. It's just up in a skyscraper on 57th Street. It was this big building that curves and goes up really tall. I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. You know, I went in, sat down, Billy Idol came in. He's like wearing his, got his look, still Generation X. They'd uh, show me a recording of Generation X at the Marquee Club. So I was able to see them rocking out in all their glory. We had a fine interview, we had a fun time. He's like, hey man, see you later, man. And I think I got a t-shirt, Generation X t-shirt out of it, you know, which was pretty great. And went back to DC and I was like, already uh, we had formed our, our group in high school called The Rudiments and it was me and a couple of classmates, uh, Tim Cornish on guitar, Bruce Blumberg on bass. After meeting Billy Idol, I was kind of like, oh man, you know, we should move to New York. Why don't we get on up there? That kind of took us up to, you know, leaving Northern Virginia. A couple years after high school, coming to New York. At first, just shocked that I could find my way in New York in a big city. And I think the first time I arrived by myself, by Amtrak, it felt like the city was black and white. It felt like you're walking into a movie. It was so dirty. It was so gross and grimy. 70s were not kind to New York City. What I saw was kind of the end of that horrible time. I missed the blackout that was just before in 77, because I didn't get there until spring of 78. Okay. It's a fine springtime, I felt, when I got there. Made my way to the Lower East Side, found friends who had driven me up before with most of my stuff, but then I left it at this guy's place. The guy had already moved out, but he still had the keys to his apartment on First Avenue between 9th and 10th Street in East Village. Contacted him, and he goes, oh, well, hey, Stuart, you know, if you want, you can stay at that place. You know, I still have the keys. You know, there's still a few days on, uh, you know, the month until the month's over. You know, let, you know, if the landlord comes, you know, just don't let him in, you know, like, uh, you know, or the super, you know, just yeah. kind of, but, you, you know, if you want, you can stay there for some days. So I stayed there. That was my first place I stayed at for some days there in New York City. The super did come and, you know, tried to knock on the door and, like, see what was going on. And I just kind of, like, you know, it was like, you know, went to survival mode. It was very quiet, you know. Yeah. I never saw the guy, and he never came and shooed me out. I went to Max's Kansas City one night, and he got a drink, and you know how at the bar you get a drink, and you kind of look around, who's at the bar? My first dominatrix. That became the dominatrix that figured in my life, and there she was. There she I was came. shocked, and she turned to me, and I was like... Right when you moved, right, I mean, relatively... Within, within weeks of nice. moving to New York, uh, I started, you know, I was able to go out and uh, run around and get into the club world, yep. and... Uh, yeah, there she was. And so then we kind of hooked up for a time there. And she was really into Bowie too. And so we, yeah. you know, she had like adult fantasy bedroom. She was a dominatrix. Yeah. Eventually she moved from where she was up in the 30s, Murray Hill. And uh, she said, well, if you see a unmarked van outside when you, when you go, that's probably CIA listening to us. 
that was a big hookup. Uh, that being able to meet her from D.C. to there was incredible. Uh, I thought, and I thought, you know, like this, this is this is New York, you know. Yeah. I was lucky because I was able to get a job within, I'd say, within two weeks of being in Manhattan. I got a really nice job because really? in, in Northern Virginia, I used to do. My second job ever was I started to do landscaping work and okay. planting gardens. Yep. And at first it was just watering, watering at the Hidden Lane Nursery in Northern Virginia. Wow. That became like the next phase of my life was from 78 to about 82, doing full-time work at a landscaping job. And all of that experience, every day of doing that, kind of working with the crew was, was pretty easy, pretty fun. You always found people you could work with. Yeah. Company was pretty cool. Pay was pretty good. I always had money. You know, you were secure. I was secure. And, and, and when I moved to New York and I created, uh, when I formed the Futons, when I put together Ike Yard, I was still doing that. So, you know, I, I would have money to buy records. Yes. I would have money to eat. I had money to buy clothes, 40 hour a week job. Equipment? As needed, but yeah. uh, you know, for you know the rudiments, I was drumming, yeah. singing. For the Futons, I was drumming, singing, writing songs. The first thing I did when I moved to New York, I was invited to do a thing called the New Wave Vaudeville Show, which later became the people who did a thing called Club 57 in New York, which was a whole scene too. Okay. The New Wave Vaudeville Show was, all, was my debut in New York, also Klaus Nomi's debut in New York. This, this guy, Klaus Nomi, who, yeah. who had very little material, but who people found out about. Yeah. Um, so he was there, a group called Come On. It was a kissing contest with James Chance and Lydia Lunch. Okay. Uh, so a bunch of people got together. It was a Polish bingo club called Irving Plaza, which eventually became a whole concert place unto itself. But this yeah. was the first okay. thing there. They were doing Polish bingo, and I think a Susan Henniford came and said, hey, you know, let's do something different. You might make some money, and, and they did. Uh, so for that performance, I have to, oh, you got to perform a song. What, what song? I didn't have any songs. I had one song, Imagination by the Rudiments. And so I used that recording and I played guitar to it and I wore plastic see-through pants and... Uh, so you actually played to the recording? Played to the recording. Sort of performance art piece? Yep, yeah, you know, kind of like with the guitar and... Uh, just you? Just me, just, the one, just that one thing. Then after that, we made the Futons, and the Futons were playing, and, you know, the Futons, it was its own sound. I could say that we actually did create our own sound. Futons was also a three-piece. We tried guitar, bass, and drums for a while. We had a, a female bass player. Um, I thought that was a great idea, you know, to have, like, have three-piece, you know, to have a woman in the group. Yeah. In the end, for some complication, maybe her timing or what she was doing otherwise didn't work out. One night I was at the Mud Club, and then I saw this guy come into the club, and he looked like a cross between like David Bowie and Mick Jagger. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting character. He hasn't been here before. I know because I've been here most every night yeah. of this club since it started. Yeah. And that was the Mud Club. The Mud Club had started in 78. I saw Martin, and I went up to him and said, Martin, you know, uh, you know, who are you? What's up? You know, where did you come from? He's like, oh, Martin Fisher. I come from Berlin. I just came tonight. You know, I'm a synthesizer player. I was like, oh, hey. I've never heard of that before. You know, I've never heard of someone who's a synth player. Yeah. I had already played with synthesizers in New York because there was a place called uh, Public Access 
synthesizer studio, P-A-S-S-S, where you could go and uh, rent a Buchla wall size synthesizer for three dollars an hour and just play on it. What? Whatever you wanted to do. Seriously? Seriously. This is what? P-A-S-S? P-A-S-S. Public Access Synthesizer Studio. And oh. you, you could also go there and for three dollars an hour use their studio and like record things if you wanted to. And I worked there with uh, Evan Lurie, John Lurie of Lounge Lizard's brother, oh, okay. Steve Piccolo, who was, I think, a bass player with the Lounge Lizards, I think, for some time. They wanted to do something, so there was always a studio where you could go and do work. Yeah. Lydia Lunch is a drummer. Bradley Eros had a rehearsal studio, too, down on Bowery, and uh, that was like $7 an hour, and you can go and rehearse downstairs. The Futons had, a, we had our own rehearsal studio. Uh, we were on West Houston Street in Manhattan, Lower East Side. I have heard since that that downstairs space, it was like a loft space upstairs, but I heard the downstairs space that uh, Phil Plass had been using. Oh, it had oh. been his space. Oh. Uh, it was really just a basement. I mean, there was boiler and stuff. And yeah, it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't really fixed up or anything. Was, uh, but supposedly that, that, was, that was where he had, had been at some point. It was kind of a cool building. The landlord who knew that Philip Glass had been down there uh, was nice enough. His name was Bruce. Uh, he let us play music down there. We got our chops together. We've made the Futons. Futons played for a few months. Martin joined. Futons gelled and so it's synthesizer, drums, and guitar. Guitar player was a guy named Mike Finley. We called him Frank, big tall guy, all white, a bit of an albino. Uh -huh. Just call me Frank, Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, later you could see him in, of all things, the uh, music video for Bette Midler's version of the Rolling Stones, <laughs> Beast of Burden. Oh, no way, I remember that. And it's yeah. a great, it's, it's, it's just a performance video. I think they played at Peppermint Lounge. Yeah. And I don't know how Mike Finley was playing with her, but in that video, you'll see a tall guy <laughs> playing guitar, probably wearing like a, like a blazer jacket, and uh, that's, that's, uh, that's our boy. I was singing, uh, Martin was also doing vocals. Eventually, we got a syndrome, so I could play syndromes and uh, oh, drums, cool. which was great because, you know, Gary Newman had syndromes and uh, Ultravox had syndromes, and we were like, that was all your, right. That was your first electronic drumming experience. Exactly. Nice. You know, it was just like one, like a, it looked like a UFO, like a UFO frisbee thing. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, no, it was, uh, we started to do the group. The group had a great sound, uh, we never, but we never made a record, and we didn't uh, make make any kind of uh, recordings, Any actually. recording. There's nothing that exists. Well, there is, there is two live recordings of, uh, I mean, live videos of us playing at CBGB's. Really? Uh, and that's uh, from the group called um, Night Clubbing, and it's Pat and Emily. If you go to the Futons Facebook page, we don't have a lot of content. F-U-T-A-N-T-S, the Futons. Uh, you'll find those two videos are there, posted in the past. If you Google search uh, the Futons, live, you'll find two of our songs. One that Martin sings and one that I sing. thing was, by the winter of 79, we'd done some shows, we'd moved downtown, there was a whole loft, we were able to get a whole front-to-back loft floor down there for not much money. 
I was making steady money so I could pay some of the rent. Martin was making a little money. Frank was starting to fail. Frank was taking too much acid. And uh, at one point he just said, well, you know, I can't pay rent anymore, so I'm going to sleep in the hall. Yeah. So we were like, oh, okay. So it's going to be like that now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we started struggling. We brought in another roommate, you know, Dominique Blondeau, who uh, was an artist. And uh, the whole situation ran down to where eventually the landlord wanted that loft and then moved us downstairs into another place that, that was like a cold water flat, okay. you know, like a temporary place to stay. Yeah. But while we were up on Warren Street, up in the top floor loft, some interesting things happened. One day, Martin said, oh, my Berlin friends are going to come, my West Berlin buddies. It was the group called Malaria, and they oh. all came. Oh, wow. And I, I had gone out to the subway, gone out by the subway downtown to get my coffee in the morning. You know, you get 25 cent cup of coffee. And uh, on the way back, I see this woman coming out of the subway, and I was like, this is not your usual New York people here. And it was uh, Gudrun Gut from uh, Malaria coming up, and she's wearing, as Berliners would call it, the, their shock colors. They'd wear black, but they'd also wear like a bright purple or pink yeah. or orange to shock with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she was coming to meet us, you know, come to our place. And so we brought her up. And, you know, they, Martin and her had known each other for a while. That became the beginnings of my connections with the West Germans uh, crew. Okay. By the time the Futons fizzled out, Frank was gone. Last show, we had Danny Rosen on guitar, four-string guitar, playing with us maybe at Tier 3. When the Mud Club got going, there was the Mud Club where you'd go, because of course you have to go almost every night, because it could be Magazine, it could be yeah. Suicide, it yeah. could, you know, all the great groups played there. And it was a small place. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't their big gigs, but smaller places. Yeah. Small place. Got in free every night if I wanted to go every night, free drinks every night, you know. Yeah. So it was, you know, there's no reason to miss it, really. Yeah. I would come home from work, I would then uh, eat, sleep for a couple hours, get up, go to the club, stay till as long as I wanted, come home, crash again, get up by 7 and go to work at 8, 8 or 8.30 a.m. I did that for years. Yeah. yeah. yeah it was a way to see, to see everything. Um, you took a lot of it in. Took a lot of it in. Uh, we were kind of the young kids. Like, for example, by the time the Mud Club came and started to have, you know, it didn't have any history. It wasn't like Studio 54, which I didn't go until 1984 when Dominatrix played there. Okay. But, you know, I had no reason to go to Studio 54. It wasn't my right, scene. Right. You know, I could go to Max's Kansas City. It was still going when I moved there. And yeah. they actually had like no wave nights. So when yeah. I got there, I was seeing like the end of no wave. It was dying, the groups were doing different stuff. James Chance had already moved into another group, different things. Yeah. Lydia probably had a couple of groups on by that point. The Futons did okay. We played for a while. Frank fell out. Danny came in. The loft that we had, where we were able to stay for a while, and it was also downtown right next to Dan Donnie Christensen from the contortions and so forth. At one point I woke up and went out to the kitchen and Martin had brought back Anita Pollenberg. Keith Richards' old wife was there in our kitchen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and like I had already, had, I had been sleeping. I had a regular, you know, a regular night. He and her had been out. And as I found out later, reading Keith Richards' bio, you find there's a period where they were, they lived in town. She actually lived in like Long Island or something, and she would come into town to try to score. Yeah. So that's why she was there for. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just kind of said, "Oh, Anita Poundberg, hey, good to see you." <laughs> 
you know, you want some cereal or what? You know, like it's, you know. The landscaping work would fizzle in the, in the cold winter, like in January, often the end of January, they would say, well, Stuart, we don't, have, we don't have that much work for you now. I think the first year, I think I stayed. But I think the winter of 79, I decided to go back to D.C. until the work started again. Yeah, yeah. I think it was because the Futons had wound down. We were living in a place where we weren't even paying rent anymore and had to get out of yeah. soon. And it dovetailed with, I think I then rented like a room in a, like a, it wasn't necessarily a men's hotel for about a week or two until the work was over. And then like, I, and then I had nowhere to live. And then I would just go, I just decided to go back to Northern Virginia. Uh, while I was in DC, Martin was, was getting into other music and he played with a group called Defunct, which is a New York, New York funk group with uh, Joseph Bowie. Joseph Bowie, I think the, uh, the younger brother of Lester, Lester Bowie. The jazz, oh, yeah, jazz yeah. player, I yes, think. Yeah. Um, and it was defunct with, uh, with that whole crew. Later on, uh, bassist Melvin Gibbs joined them as well. Melvin is someone who I've met again recently. Melvin Gibbs, eventually Henry Rollins' band. Oh, bass yeah, player, dreadlocked yes. bass player in yes. that band. So now we're starting to see some threads that, that work through here between like the defunct crew and, and black jazz in New York at that time in the end of 70s, early 80s. Uh, end of no wave, beginning of electronic music of that phase. Yeah, I don't yes. mean I don't mean the Zanakases and Stockhausens of the world who right. already of course, who yes. already have been yes. existing for a while. But yeah. that was not street music. You know, electronic music was not street music yet. So right. Right. Martin died by the spring of that year. He fell off a fire escape. From what I understand, the top of the fire escape gave way, and it kind of threw him, and he fell all the way down to the ground and uh, died. Oh, so Martin was gone. I went back to DC in the Amtrak as usual. Amtrak was cheap then. Took a trip back to DC, went to my parents' place where we were back in the same suburb of Oakton, back to my room in the corner, listening to my music and found a movie, Clockwork Orange. And from a Clockwork Orange, after digging into that and seeing that two times, then I read the book, and then in the book, the, Alex goes to the record store, and he talks about a bunch of groups, and one of them is called Ike Yard. It's Ike Yard. And another group is doing a track called Night After Night After Night. It's, it's in the scene where he's in the record store. Those names are on the walls next to him as he's in the record store. Yeah. And I think they're listening to some of whatever that music is. There's a Heaven 17, got their name from there too. There's uh, Ed, Ed and Id Molotov, not yet a group. Lay quiet a while with Ed, not yet a group. For all you kids out there who don't have good group names. These are the other names uh, that are in the That are in there, yeah. And and does somebody actually say them? Signage in the movie, but uh, you know, in the book they're they're talked about a little more. You know, and like he has a whole row of them. You know, uh, Stash Crow, Stash Crow from Russia. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and like they're all in there, and I was like, Ike Yard, that's, a, that's, a, that's an odd name, you know. Across the uncovered porcelain chest, spent insects. That is about it. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. 
If you'd like to support this series, please do so with a contribution to my Patreon page. That is patreon.com, Stefan Scott Nelson. And now I'd like to end the episode with an update. I recently had a phone conversation with Stuart where we talked about the several projects that he is currently involved with. Enjoy. Enjoy. So yeah, Stefan, I wanted to give you a few updates on, on the many things that are going on. You know, as it turns out, it looks like uh, the new Ikeyard album, Rejoy, will be coming up before the end of the year, uh, God willing, uh, on Noise Tank Vienna again. Uh, the album Rejoy was, a, Rejoy was a title that I saw in Japan, and it's just part of their Japanese-English kind of conjugations there where... I don't think it's about rejoicing, it's just about rejoy. You know, it's almost like a candy or a, or some kind of an experience, you know, that you pop on a VR goggle for or something. But uh, I hear rejoy is coming. have to say we are so happy with it because we, we really were able to not only have uh, a couple of the longer pieces that we had been doing in concert on this album, but we also were able to take enough time to do the mixing to where I really, I'm just really happy with it and really satisfied with how it sounds. That's going to be followed by the remix EP, which so far has got uh, Regis's side project, uh, Cub, CUB, doing um, Nightclub. We've got DJ Rebecca doing Teardrop. We found that she was ending her DJ sets in, uh, around Europe with Teardrop, and so I thought that was a good excuse to give her a ring and find out if she wanted to do a remix. So we're going to have that uh, that cut with her. We've got Grebenstein, one of uh, one of Regis's buddies, doing another remix. We've got uh, Richard Fearless from Death in Vegas doing a remix, and hopefully uh, Codex Empire, uh, one of the noise. Noise Tank crew uh, will be doing another remix as well, so hopefully we can get them all a fit on one EP. That should be maybe the first half of the year. Superior Viaduct will be re-releasing the first two records from Mike Yard, the Night After Night EP from 1981, the A-Fact, a second album from 1982. We just sent off those masters and stuff, and I mean, getting the whole of those master tapes of Night After Night was an adventure onto itself. We really had originally had a reel-to-reel tape and had given that to Dan Selzer for the acute re-release in 2006. That all stayed in New Jersey at the studio there, but in the end, it all worked out well. We were able to get 24-bit masters from that, which was better than we expected, and uh, so all that's been sent off. There may be even another release of some unreleased music that we did right after the Factory album that we were really excited about. So. Ikeyard is uh, kind of busier than ever, you know, same time, you know, even Dominatrix uh, and Death Come the Crew and Black Rain are all firing on many cylinders as well. Black Rain has got the all-new EP, Computer Soul, coming on Black Silver Black. Uh, just finishing the cover now. Hopefully that'll be out before the end of the year. That album is a pretty far-out album. At the same time, there's an early years album that Black Silver Black was going to do. That record, the Metal Rain 1989-1993 album, will be coming out on the Atlanta label called DK Records, DKA as they're known, and that's a pretty exciting record when it was a four-piece doing everything from playing with Gigi Allen's last show, all the crazy stuff that we used to do live, you know, setting fires on stage, starts with a remix from Thrones, from the Young Gods, and that's uh, Metal Rain. 
as well as the Red LZ show, Rolling Thunder, up at the Red Bull Academy now until August. They're doing an ongoing series of kind of live events and slideshows, so I've signed on July 26th. I'll be doing a slideshow with slides by my wife, Noyuri Tokiwa, from the first interior show that we did in 1984 through the live tours that we did together from 2005-2007. So it's just going to be a whole tribute to our MC, and that's going to be called The Ghost Among the Crew, so a tribute to Red LZ. Probably last but not least is uh, there'll be the first Dominatrix live show since 1985. will be happening in Houston, Texas at a club called Numbers. Going to be there with Dominique Davalos, the original vocalist. Dominique's going to break loose, and maybe we're going to get into a little bit of Dominatrix action. So, yeah, there's a lot happening music-wise. Same time, the uh, the new company, you know, when I met you the first time, I had just come from San Francisco, where I was working with my partner, Tom Murphy, on that, and in the end, kind of creating our own internet. But we're using blockchain, as well as combining three other new technologies together. What I'll say about those new technologies, without non-disclosure form, is that one of them is involving Tim Berners-Lee, who created the World Wide Web, he has a new thing called Solid, and that's about your files and how you can control your information and your files. And so we are working with that to integrate that with our platform. So in the end, the platform is kind of a, a bit of all the worlds that are happening now, but about two years in the future. The thing is, Bitcoin and blockchain are very exciting, and that's all you hear about at the moment, but they don't work with mobile yet. And so that's another thing that we have to crack. The way that we're working on it looks like it's full speed ahead on getting it to work on mobile. And so, of course, that's what we want to come out with and be ready with by the time we launch. I'm assembling a group of artists, music artists mainly, who will be our early group of people who can work with us to develop what the music engine will be doing specifically. And it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting group of all world-class artists. Of course, some unknown people, too, who've already come, come to us with what their specific wants and desires are. So we're working on that pretty much every day, to, you know, turning that into what will be a very seamless, ambient, and totally focused kind of an experience when you get on the phone and get on our platform. So that's, a, that's really our whole world-building thing that we're working on. And beyond that, the Diaries Project has kind of popped up and is now with some editors who are going to be telling me uh, what they think and what best form that can take. So far, it looks like it will be a book with a digital component to where it can have all the different music that go through the diaries. And basically, that is about the kind of every day and every night of the 1980s and with a bit of a bleed out as well. 1988, 1990, the clubs in New York kind of fell down and that's where I kind of end uh, this group of diaries and so all of that is all happening now. It's all happening now.